All right, Psalm 95, if you want to turn there in your Bibles with me as we continue our study through the book of Psalms together. Psalm 95 through 100 are often referred to as coronation psalms, psalms that were used as a part of the celebration many times as they made their uh, procession up to Jerusalem, as well as times when they would coronate and celebrate certain things. And you'll sort of see that celebratory tone in these psalms, a lot of references to giving to the Lord worship and singing unto the Lord, giving glory and honor due to him and to his name, and just celebrating the fact that despite what was going on, even in those days there in Israel, as the Roman government uh, many a times would oppress them in the days of our Lord, as well as even in the times of these Old Testament Psalms, as they battled with different things uh, and, and kings rising and falling, and sometimes good kings, sometimes bad kings, uh, at times other empires dominating the nation of Israel, times they went into captivity, but always this reminder as we'll see psalm 97 that the lord reigns and just that that continual remembrance that despite what it looks like or how it's going or what's on the human throne that ultimately there is a higher throne that exists there is the throne of god and that god's people can find great consolation and celebrate that the lord reigns ultimately so psalm 95 you'll notice begins <clears throat> with really sort of a exhortation inviting us as the people of God uh, to worship and to express our worship, particularly as we've seen many times through the instrumentality of music and song. He says here to us, verse one, O come, let us sing to the Lord. He says, let us shout joyfully to the rock of our salvation. Let us come before his presence with thanksgiving and let us shout joyfully to him with psalms so you notice the psalmist begins telling us not only that we should worship the lord but he throws some other words in here that really give us an indication of what should be incorporated in that as we've seen many many times in psalm 96 which probably we'll look at this evening as well begins repeatedly with that refrain sing to the lord sing to the lord sing to the lord and i can't emphasize enough that one of the very clear ways the word of god has given to us to offer worship to the lord and there are many ways that we can offer worship i think we make a great mistake uh, in some ways, when we think about the musical aspect of our worship gatherings, uh, where we use music and we sing through some songs, and often we refer to those who do such as worship leaders. Uh, and so sometimes we almost kind of uh, seems want to exclusively boil down it's the singing itself that is is worship when the Bible shows there are a lot of different ways that we can express worship to the Lord. Uh, but yet, nonetheless, one of the very clear ways that God has prescribed for us to give worship and honor to him is through singing. And so here under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, the psalmist beckons us. He says, come. In other words, join with me. He says, let us sing to the Lord. So you notice the idea there is let us. The idea is it's something to be done collectively. And there's something that God intends where we come together and and. You know, there's something about, I think God is pleased when he hears the voices of his children and we become really his choir singing unto him. And there's something I think very beneficial that happens as well when we uh, are in the presence of God's people and we hear just the collective sound of other voices lifting up song and praise to the Lord. I know there are times when, you know, we're singing together as the Lord's people where sometimes I'll just for a moment just purposely as a part of my worship, just be quiet. And it's just, just a wonderful thing just to hear the sound of other voices and to hear that kind of unified sound being lifted up to the Lord. And maybe I'll just listen for a moment or just begin to pray as the other voices are being lifted or something very powerful and beautiful. It's, it's certainly honoring to God, I think, and it's something beneficial to us. So he says, let us us together, that we would as one sing to the Lord. Again, this is why we need to be together, to lift our voices corporately. There's something very important in the spiritual worship that God attends as we sing to the Lord together. And he also says there, notice the, the attitude of our heart. He says, let us shout joyfully to the rock of our salvation. And again, the idea of shouting joyfully, shouting is something where we raise our voice, the intensity of the sound of our voice. It implies passion. 
It implies, you know, that we're, we're engaged, and he says, and to do it joyfully. The idea is with celebration. So there should be this attitude of heart where we are enthusiastic, where we're passionate. Uh, again, not just in sort of this mechanical way, singing through songs or mumbling words, but that there'd be a great degree of passion in what we do. And certainly we don't want to be distracting. We don't want to be out of order. We don't want to draw attention to ourselves. But I think, again, there are balance in all things by the same token to have a degree of celebratory attitude in our heart is something that we also shouldn't dismiss either. Uh, and that there's a great degree of, of passion. Again, we, we look at people in football stadiums and at sporting events, and if they get enthusiastic or they shout or they raise their voice or lift their hand, we call them a, a good fan, right? <laughs> the, the, boy, that guy's a really devoted fan because he's shouting for his team or raising his hand or you know, doing all the things. But yet then sometimes, you know, as people in the body of Christ want to get excited about the Lord, hey, oh, settle down there, brother. We don't want to get a little too excited there. And, and I think there's a, certainly a balance. We don't want to be distracting and unorderly, but at the same token, uh, God help us not also to become mechanical and to become dispassionate and overly kind of just subdued where there's no passion or enthusiasm at all, where we're not singing in a sense, in a joyful way, shouting. And he says, why? Unto the, the one who is the rock of our salvation. What a great title. So many times the Bible refers to God with that metaphor of being the rock, that he's the rock of ages. Here he's called the rock of our salvation. The idea of a rock there speaks of a, something that's solid, something that's immovable. Uh, Jesus talked about the best foundation was to build our house upon the rock. So again, that, that's the idea. When the Bible speaks of God as our rock, the idea is that he's immovable, he's unchangeable, He's a solid, stable, reliable foundation for our lives. He is the rock. He's not going to change. No one's going to move him away from who he is or what he is like. And here it says that he's the rock of our salvation. He's the one that's the rock of our salvation. What he did gives the stability to our salvation experience. It's not us. It's not what we contribute. And sometimes we even think, oh, it's my degree of faith. No, it's all what he did. He's the rock and he's the basis of it all and everything about our salvation rests upon him and we just build upon what he has done for us. He then says, verse two, and let us come before his presence with thanksgiving. And, and I like the fact that he alludes to let us come before his presence. It implies that the psalmist understands that when we do come together to sing to the Lord, to express praise to him, to shout joyfully to the rock of our salvation, that the presence of the Lord is in our midst. And again, so we're not coming into the house of God or having even a time of worship together with a few friends in a living room and just singing songs because it's a religious activity. We truly believe that the word of God teaches that the actual presence of the Lord spiritually is with us. Jesus said, whenever two or three gather in my name, there am I in the midst. That there's something about when we come together, even as two or three, you know, that, that the Lord says, you know, I, I manifest my presence. I, I show up. And in some way, the Lord is drawn to those times and he, and he offers his presence in a special way to us. And I think it makes a whole world of difference if we remain conscious of that. The Bible says that he inhabits the praises of his people. And it makes a whole world of difference to me anyway when I come into the house of the Lord and I'm together with the people of God to realize that I'm singing not just to be singing out loud in the room, but there is an invisible presence in the spirit. The Lord himself is with us. And though we may not see him with the eye, his very real presence is with us in the spirit. And, and he is with us just as much as if someone were standing at the front that we could see bodily and his presence is with us. And it makes the purpose of what we do and the way we go about it all the more important, I think, because then the attitude of our heart and the way we go about it really matters because we realize, look, Lord, are, are you pleased with this? Are we blessing you? Are we honoring you? And so he says, come before his presence with thanksgiving. That is, Lord, we're, we're here to just say thank you. Thank you that you, you got us through the last few days. Thank you that you gave me the strength in my body to, to even be able to be at a, at a meeting once again, Lord. And just thank you. There's so many reasons we can be grateful to the Lord for. And I think when we come before his presence with thanksgiving, and he says, and shout joyfully to him, verse 2, with psalms. So notice, again, what have we been studying up to Psalm 95 here? These psalms. 
And so many of these psalms, we know some of them have been set to music. In fact, even Psalm 95, verse 6 and 7, uh, some of you remember, that's an old praise chorus. You know, oh, come, let us worship and bow down. Let us kneel before the Lord our God, our maker. So some of these very psalms have been set to music because they were a Jewish hymnal, and they would sing these very scripture phrases unto the Lord. And here we're actually commanded, notice, that we should utilize the psalms in order to express joyful gratitude and praise to the Lord. The reason, as if we needed one, right? But God gives them to us to stir us to want to worship him. He says, verse three, for the Lord is the great God and the great king, that is the supreme ruler over all gods. Again, so there may be other things that people worship. The idea of small g versus little g, everybody has a God, right? Idolatry is not just something for people who create little carved images and put them on their shelves or go out to statues. Idolatry or worship of, of, of gods is something that has existed from the creation of mankind. Everybody worships something. Whatever the master passion is in our life, whatever we give our most devotion or allegiance to, whether that's a person or some pursuit or some physical you know, thing in our life or, or whatever it is, uh, there were deities for all types of things. There were deities to worship, you know, the god of pleasure, the the, the god of, uh, you know, of, of alcohol. There were, you know, deities to worship, you know, lust and sexual passion. And so we all worship something. And, and what God is saying is, look, above all those things that people give their allegiance and attention to and devotion to, for those of us who worship the one true and living God, he says, how much more should we be with passion and devotion, giving worship to the one true great and living God, because he says he is the great one and the great king and ruler over all these other dead idols and worthless deities that people worship. And you know, you, you look at some people in false religions and people who are into all different forms of idol practice and some of the things that they would do even in the ancient cultures and people with a great degree of devotion would subject themselves to things and do things with a great degree of passion. And so knowing the one true and living God all the more that he is the great one overall should prompt us to be inspired to want to worship him. For verse four, he says, and in his hand, and notice now he's going to expound upon the greatness of God, because unlike any other, in his hand are the deep places of the earth. Now think about that, the deep places of the earth. Why? Because he's the creator God. He's the one that's created everything that exists. And so, again, we have places on this earth, you know, ocean bodies and, and, and deep canyons. I mean, places where literally the depths of these things are miles and miles deep. And here it says that God is so great, those things which are the deepest places of the earth, they're in his hand. He created those things. He, you know, he can reach down into them to the deepest places of the earth and the same thing, the heights of the hills. So from the deepest places to the highest places, they are all his. Verse five, he says, for the sea is his. He not only created it, he's its owner, the one who rules over the seas, the one who rules over all those things, for he made it. And his hands also formed the dry land. So because he created all things, he controls all things. Now, with this understanding of the greatness of the God that we serve, he then says, verse 6, in light of this, oh, come, he says. The idea is this, is this is the responsive call now. In light of these things, the greatness of God, oh, come, let us worship. And again, that word worship, as we've said before, comes from an old English word that literally meant to express worth. And that's the idea. In a sense, the essence of worship, if you really boil it down, is to, in a sense, express worth unto God. That, that's the idea. So how we're going about that, making a sacrifice in some way. You know, uh, again, when, when eight, the first time the word worship actually appears in the Bible in the Old Testament is in Genesis chapter 22, where, remember, God tells Abraham to take his only son, who he waited for for a long time. Remember how long? And finally... God gave him this promised child to be the inheritor 
of all that he had and even the promises of God, the Abrahamic covenant. And then God said to him, Genesis 22, I want you to take your, your only son, your dear son whom you love, and I want you to go up and I want you to sacrifice him. And it says that Abraham is an act of faith and love and devotion and obedience to God over everything he was feeling in his, in his soul, no doubt. Because understand what God was asking of him. And he says to his servant, the lad and I will go and up and worship and we will return to you. Now, as Abraham said, the lad and I are going to worship. He didn't have a guitar strapped to his back and a few song sheets. They weren't going to go up there and sing praise songs. He was going to go up there and he was going to lay down his will. And he was going to sacrifice the most precious thing in his life as a person. The thing that meant the most to him at that time. The thing that was the most valuable, precious thing that he would have clinged to until his death. And now God is saying, Abraham, that thing that matters to you more than anything else in the world. Do I matter to you more than that? Because if I do, Abraham, then sacrifice it for me. Lay it down for me. And Abraham, out of greater love and devotion for God, as he was asked by God to do this, said, I'm going to go worship. And so in essence, there's the first time the word worship shows up in the Bible. It has nothing to do with singing songs or playing music or even attending a, a church service, per se, or worship meeting. It was about going through an act of saying, God, I love you so much and you are so great and worthy of my dedication and my devotion. I will lay down everything in my life and give you my best. And whatever you want to do, God, it's, it's it, there. I'm putting it at your altar. And, and that really is a reminder to us. What's the essence of worship? Sometimes it's laying down our will. I don't feel like singing. I don't feel like going to the house of the Lord. I, you know, I don't feel like surrendering something to God. But that's the, that's the end goal of worship. And, and when we worship in any way, there's that degree of giving over to God that which is precious to us and saying, Lord, your will, not mine, ultimately be done. And so he says, come, let us worship and bow down. Again, the idea to bow down implies to in reverence, honoring the greater one, the authority, the king on the throne, the master who rules over us. Let us bow down and kneel before the Lord, our maker. So not only did God create and make the heavens, the earth, the sea, the dry land. He also, the Bible says, made us. He created us. And so our very life, the very breath in our lungs, the Bible says God created Adam from the dust of the earth and breathed into his nostril the breath of life and man became a living being. The Bible repeatedly teaches all then throughout the scripture that, that even the very conception in the womb comes from the Lord, that God grants conception. So every one of our lives, from the very moment of conception, belongs to God. Psalm 139 says, God, you knit me together in my mother's womb. God, God gave the inception of our life. God creates us and designs us and everything about the intricacies of our body and our life. He writes all of our days in his book before one came to be. So the, again, the idea is, is our life belongs not to us. Biblically, the Bible says that our life belongs to God. And technically as a Christian, my life belongs to God now in a double way. Because not only did he make me, but then he redeemed me, right? So, so your life and my life as Christians, our life belongs to God twice as much. He's our, our maker and the one who gave us our life. And so therefore, really, he's the owner and controller of our life, ultimately, right? Who's determining all the breaths that you've taken since the Bible study started? It wasn't you. It's called involuntary muscles that God created. And guess who's controlling them? Every breath the Lord's giving. Every heartbeat the Lord's giving, right? Our life is in his hands. And if that were not enough, then because we rebelled against him like sheep who had gone astray, Jesus came and paid the necessary price in the shedding of his blood so that we could be redeemed. We were purchased back. That's the idea of redemption, to buy something back that's been lost because of misfortune. And Jesus redeemed us. And so therefore, the Bible says our life is not our own. It belongs to him. And so that's why we want to bow down and kneel before the Lord, our maker. And that humble awareness, he says, verse seven, for he is our God and we are the people of his pasture and the sheep of his hand. So he pictures God not only as creator, but here God as the chief shepherd and the overseer of our souls, the one who like a flock, you know, the shepherd who leads the sheep and guides them, who, who 
cares for them, protects them, watches over their welfare, feeds them and nourishes them and does what's necessary for them to be able to experience the best in their life and in their welfare. And, and the Bible uses, again, this metaphor and picture that we are like sheep, humble, weak, dependent sheep. And the best thing for a sheep to do, we know this naturally, is simply to do one thing, to stay as close as possible to its shepherd, number one, and number two, to stay with the rest of the flock. Right, if you ever watch the Discovery Channel, who does the wolf always get? That little sheepy sheepy who wanders away from the flock, right? And that's the goal. Even when you watch these predators attack flocks, what do they do? They attack a flock when a predator, a wolf a, attacks a flock, their whole goal is to get one or two to isolate away from the rest of the flock, and that's then who they chase down, and that's who they get for dinner. And I think there's a very spiritual, you know, fitting spiritual analogy in that because one of the key ways that the devil tries to destroy our lives is by simply doing two things, to get us a sheep away from our shepherd. Even in our own Christian arrogancy sometimes, we can kind of think that we, we're not just sheep, we're kind of now super sheep, you know, and, and, and all of a sudden, you know, we, we kind of got the Christian thing wired. And so we kind of disconnect from Jesus and we don't take staying close to our shepherd as seriously as we should. Jesus said, I'm the good shepherd. My sheep know my voice. Well, if, if we're going to hear somebody's voice, we have to stay close enough to him because you got to be within proximity to hear somebody's voice. And sometimes we get a little distant from Jesus and distant from our shepherd. And sometimes we can also make the mistake of we start to disconnect and get distant from the flock. And then we start to get isolated and we put ourselves in a very vulnerable spot for the, the roaring lion to devour us when that happens. And so here, this reminder of this picture of the relationship that we have with our God. He's our maker. He's our king. He deserves our reverence and that we submit to his authority and kneel before his throne like servants taking our orders from the one who is our master and our king, that we present ourselves to him and that we also remember that we are like weak and needy sheep, the people of his pasture, we're the sheep of his hand and that we need him to shepherd our lives. We need the chief shepherd and overseer of our soul to guide us and to direct us and he's a wonderful shepherd. Wonderful, wonderful shepherd, as you simply let him lead your life, ultimately he'll lead you, yes, through valleys of the shadow of death, but he also will lead you into some really wonderful green pastures, and he'll give peace to your life, and he'll make sure your life is cared for properly if we simply stay close to him. Now, verse 7, you'll notice at the end of it, there's sort of a change in the tone. The psalmist now gives an exhortation after he exalts the greatness of God and how worthy he is of our worship. It's almost as if he gives a little exhortation to say, now don't dismiss this. Don't separate yourself and allow distance to come between you and him. It's, it's only going to be to your downfall. So he says, verse seven, today, if you hear his voice, do not harden your hearts, he says, as in the rebellion, as in the day of trial in the wilderness, probably talking about the days of Meribah, uh, Exodus 17, or maybe some of the other occasions where the children of Israel rebelled against God from time to time during their journey in the wilderness. He says, verse 9, when your fathers tested me, they tried me, though they saw my work. For 40 years I was grieved with that generation and said, it is a people who go astray in their hearts and they do not know my ways. So I swore in my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. So notice the term there, verse 7, the end of it, regarding hearing his voice. Again, what did I say a moment ago? Jesus said that I'm the good shepherd and my sheep hear my voice. They know my voice. That's the goal. The shepherd needs to be in a place in proximity to his sheep, and his sheep need to be attentive to hearing his voice. The safest thing for the sheep is follow the commands of the shepherd. Whatever that command may be, he's seeking to guide them into the way that's safest for them and healthiest for them. So he says today to us, if you hear his voice, don't harden your hearts. Again, God is looking to speak to us, to communicate things to us. And he says, if you hear his voice today, don't harden your heart and block out what he's saying to you. Now that indicates something that apparently we can harden our hearts. The Bible wouldn't say don't harden your heart. The idea is let your heart become calloused or dull if that's something that we at times can do. And so therefore, sometimes God may speak to us 
and maybe we harden our heart because we don't like what he's saying to us, particularly maybe if he's saying you should apologize, right? We usually all don't like that one. Or if he's saying you know that was wrong and you need to own up to it and acknowledge that it's wrong and stop dismissing it or making excuses. And so we, don't, we don't like to hear it. There's certain things that God says to us. It may be something God's asking us to do, maybe to take a step of faith. Maybe it's to share the gospel with somebody. Maybe it's to speak to somebody. There are lots of different ways that we can hear the voice of the Lord and we can kind of harden our heart and try and shut out what God's saying because maybe what he's saying to us is, is difficult. It's hard for us to process in our humanity. And the caution here is, look, if you hear his voice, the idea of today is, is in the present sense, right now, today. God's always speaking in the present tense. Every day, that is today indicates it happens every day. God is looking to speak to me and you in different ways every day. So he says today, right now, in the present moment, if you hear his voice each day, day by day, be careful. Don't, don't begin to harden your heart to the voice of God. Listen, keep an open ear to what he's saying. And he says, because this is something that happened before. And notice how God equates when the children of Israel did this on more than one occasion in the Old Testament he saw it as in the days of the rebellion. God saw that rebellion. The idea is God was trying to speak and lead his people, but when they didn't listen to him, God saw that as rebellion. And so when we as God's people don't listen, in a sense, that's what we're doing because we're rebelling against our shepherd, right? We're basically being a rebellious sheep, and it doesn't go well for rebellious sheep. He says, as in a day of trial in the wilderness, when your fathers, the prior generations, God says, they were, they were testing me, they tried me, though they saw my work. Now, the idea there, verse nine, though they saw my work, what God's saying is, is God said, I gave them every reason to trust me. They saw my work. Think about what the nation of Israel saw, right? I mean, the miracles, the deliverance through the Red Sea, all the incredible miracles God did, the plagues to you know, deal with you know, the Egyptians and Pharaoh, their enemies, God taking them through the Red Sea, and then all the miracles God was doing as they were journeying in that first stage of the season of wilderness, you know, providing manna from heaven and water coming out of rocks. I mean, there was no limit to the manifestation of God revealing the power that he had, his faithfulness to take care of them. So God says there, there was no error on my end as if I didn't give them enough evidence to trust me to obey me, to do what I asked them to do. God says, they saw my work, but yet sadly, he says, they were testing me even though they saw my work. The idea is testing me because they, they weren't seeing me as reliable. And see, when, when we in unbelief don't trust God and therefore don't follow his voice, or we in unbelief, in a sense, don't obey what God's asking us to do because maybe it challenges our reason or whatever it may be, in a sense, it's sort of an insult to God because it's insulting his credibility. To a degree, it's basically saying, God, I know better than you do. Or God, I, I know you're telling me this, but I don't know if you're going to be able to make that come to pass. And so really, it almost becomes an insult to the goodness of God and the power of God, right? Because we know the power of our God. And when God's shown us that, he expects us to see him as reliable and credible and to be able to trust him. And rather than to test him and to try him, instead to say, Lord, I am going to give you opportunity to work. I'm going to trust you and I'm going to yield and obey and I'm going to walk forward in faith no matter what it looks like or feels like because you're my God and you created the heavens and the earth and, and you have power to do anything. So, Lord, if that's what you're telling me, then, Lord, I'm going to let you bring it to pass. I'm going to see your work in my life just like they saw your work in their life. And so here God brings up this danger and he says 40 years i was grieved with that generation of course talking about how when they made the error of god brought them to the edge of the promised land and he told them to go in and to possess the land and god wanted to give that to them a land flowing with milk and honey a land where they could have rest and refreshment and be blessed and experience god's best and god would give them victory over their enemies and they would conquer the land all they had to do was was in a sense take hold of the promises of God made to them. They didn't have to do anything but participate and let God by his power bring things to pass. But remember, ultimately, what did they shrink back in? Unbelief. And they chose not to, oh, oh I don't know, just we look like grasshoppers in their sight. I mean, those people are like giants. And, and it was all the reasons why they couldn't do what God was telling them to do. 
and God saw that. Hebrews refers to it. In fact, Hebrews chapter 3 and 4 allude to these very verses here and refer to what was going on there. It says, as an, an evil heart of unbelief. That's a strong term, an evil heart of unbelief. Again, the Bible says without faith, it's impossible to please God. And unbelief, in a sense, really, it becomes an insult to God because it's basically saying, God, you don't have the power to do what you said you would do. You don't have the power to perform your promises. You don't have the power to protect me. You don't have the power to provide for us. You don't have the power to deal with our enemies. So therefore, we're going to continue to be conquered rather than conquer and overcome this enemy because, God, you don't have the power to, to defeat our enemies for us. And so therefore, he says, I said... It is a people, look what he says, verse 10, who go astray in their hearts. God said it was a heart problem. And he says they were going astray in their hearts since they do not know my ways. Now, God said they saw my works. Remember that prior verse? They saw my works, but God says the problem is they don't know my ways. And see, you can see the works of God, but to know God's ways is to truly have your heart in a right position where you say, that work of God, that's the way that God works and God never changes. That's called knowing the ways of God because it's not just some work that you hear about that God did. It's believing those are his ways. He's an almighty king. He's a powerful God. He's a loving father and he treats all his children the same way. And if he can part seas for this group, he can part a sea for that group. And if he can do miracles to provide for these people, he can do miracles. to. And, and it, it comes down to knowing his ways because that's believing his nature and believing that he is the one who's the same yesterday, today, and forever. And God says they went astray because they didn't know my ways. And sometimes we can make that mistake again. And that comes sometimes through not trusting and knowing what the word of God says by sometimes just not knowing the heart and nature of God. And, and it becomes, therefore, and sort of an insult, as I said. That's why I think in verse 11, he says, so I swore my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. And right, and so for 40 years, God was grieved. For 40 years, that generation that did not go in because of unbelief, and God said, that whole generation will die off in the wilderness. A 40-year funeral march. And God said, your children, who you said are going to die, if you take them into the land. Oh, we can't go into that land. Our kids will get destroyed. If we obey God's calling and we follow God's plan, it'll ruin our kids. It'll ruin our kids. And God said, no, what's going to happen is you're going to ruin your own life because of unbelief. And your kids who you said are going to get ruined, they're the generation that I'm going to give the land to. And that's, remember what happened for 40 years. And it's interesting that he says in our verse here, verse 10, that he was grieved for 40 years. Grieved. Why was God grieved? Because God, like any father, wants what's best for his kids, right? And any parent knows that. If you see your child miss some blessing or opportunity, you realize, oh man, it could have been so much better for you if you just cooperated, right, or obeyed or made a little better decisions. And that breaks the heart of a, of a parent, right, as a father. And so God says, I was grieved for 40 years. God, in a sense, was grieving over, oh, the missed opportunity, what I could have done for you, what I could have accomplished and brought the pass. But not only did it grieve his heart, but God says it ultimately provoked his anger because it says he swore my wrath, they shall not enter my rest. So that rest of the promised land, that land of blessing, they missed it. And because of unbelief, they never entered into what God had for them, which was a rest in the Lord, a good and an abundant life of blessing that God wanted for them. You know, and the writer of Hebrews picks up on these very verses and, and pictures how ultimately that spoke of the ultimate rest, the spiritual rest that we find in Jesus. And again, I encourage you to read through Hebrews 3 and 4 because there are many allusions to these very verses here. And he picks up how from a New Testament perspective, our rest is in Jesus. And those who reject Jesus and don't obey the gospel and believe the gospel, we never enter into the rest spiritually for our soul that God wants to give to us, even as they missed it in their own lives. Psalm 96 tells us, Oh, sing to the Lord a new song. Sing to the Lord all the earth. Sing to the Lord, bless his name. Again, you notice a little bit of repetition there. Verse 1 and 2, three times there's a repeated phrase. Sing to the Lord, sing to the Lord, sing to the Lord. You think God's trying to make a point? But again, not just that we sing, but why are we singing? For the Lord. 
We're singing to the Lord. We're not just singing songs. It's not just part of what we do as a, a, a worship gathering, a, a church service. That well, that's what we do. We, you know, we, we it's kind of like you know, kumbaya. We sing a few songs. We all feel fuzzy, and just there's a good little rhythm. And no, we're singing to the Lord because we're coming before His presence. And when we're singing, whether we like the tone of the song or the oh, I don't like that song. What are we singing that song for? Look, as long as it's a song, you can sing to the Lord. The whole goal is you're singing to the Lord. (laughs) You're not just singing a song. You're singing that song to the Lord. You're doing it for him as an act of worship to give glory to him. And notice, he tells us a few things about our singing to him. First of all, he tells us how we're to go about singing to the Lord. He says, sing to the Lord. Notice he says, verse one, a new song. The idea there of new is, is a fresh expression. Now, that can happen a number of different ways. Periodically adding a literal new song into your singing <laughs> that you do as the people of the Lord. And periodically a, a fresh expression. Somebody you know, receives a new song from the Lord, incorporating as a congregation you know, new songs periodically that we've never sung before. And, and they become fresh expressions instead of singing the same routine songs again and again. Sometimes it's good to mix in a new song, to learn a new song. Kind of keeps our heart engaged and our mind focused because we're paying attention to the words in a different way. And I think the idea, well, of a new song can also just be a new song in the sense of just a fresh expression. Because you can sing the same old songs and they can have a whole new meaning to you at different times and stages in your life, right? I mean, we know that. I mean, some of the songs we sing, the lyrics we sing, you know, like... Blessed be the name of the Lord, you know, and, 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 and how the Lord, you know, you can give and you can take away. And, and Lord, I'll, I'll give you praise when the sun's shining down on me, when the world's all as it should be. Lord, but I'll also give you praise when I found myself in the desert place and it's difficult. And so sometimes even as we're singing certain songs, depending on maybe what we're going through, that song takes on a whole new fresh meaning to us because maybe just what we're going through experientially in the moment and that we would let our hearts emotionally connect to those songs and express them. Sometimes singing songs just about how amazing and great God is or how thankful we are. And that's the idea, fresh expressions that we keep our heart in a sense engaged and there's a fresh passion that we don't let our heart become dull, but these fresh expressions and how we sing to the Lord. And he noticed, he tells us, who should be doing such, he makes it real simple. He just says, all the earth. If you're on the earth, (laughs) if you're on the earth, he says, those three repeated refrains, they apply. Sing to the Lord if you're someone who's on the earth. And again, why do we do it? Verse two, to bless his name. Again, the whole goal in doing what we're doing is, Lord, does this bless you? Are you blessed by this? Again, often we think we come to the house of God to get blessed. And I realize that's a part of what takes place. But really, ultimately, we're here to bless him to bring blessing to his heart. And so he also then instructs us, verse two, proclaim the good news of his salvation from day to day. Again, this great news of the salvation of God. In that day, many times it was just the salvation, great deliverances that God would bring. For you and I, from a New Testament perspective, we know the greatest degree of salvation, which is salvation eternally and the forgiveness of our sins through our Lord Jesus Christ. And so here, the the encouragement as a part of our worship unto the Lord is part of that is is proclaiming that good news, sharing that good news of his salvation. He says day to day, every day, look for opportunities to proclaim that good news. And verse three, and also to declare his glory. That is his greatness, the, the weightiness, the awesomeness, that word implies, the awesomeness of the Lord among the nations, his wonders among all peoples. Verse four, For the Lord is great. That's an understatement, isn't it? The Lord is great. Just ponder how many times you've seen that recently. Some great thing the Lord's done in your life. The Lord is great. And therefore, right response, greatly to be praised. He is to be feared, reverenced, respected deeply above all gods. The word gods are literally, the Hebrew is, is, is nothings. What a fitting term. <laughs> he's to be feared above all these nothings. <laughs> you should reverence him because he's not a nothing. He's something, something incredible. But the Lord made the heavens. All the gods of the people are idols, nothings. But the Lord 
made the heavens. Therefore, honor and majesty are before him. Strength, he says, and beauty are in his sanctuary. So again, around the presence of God, there is honor. There's great majesty, like a king, triumphant majesty before him in his presence. And strength and beauty, the Bible says, are in his sanctuary. His sanctuary is his gathering place where, where the presence of God was among the people of God and the worship of the Lord was happening. And I love what he says there, both strength and beauty are in his sanctuary. And I think in two ways. You know, there's the strength of God that's incredibly something worthy of our worship. And there's the beauty of the Lord. There's just something so beautiful about him. But I think as well in the sanctuary of God, there's strength and beauty because, you know, there's something very true that happens among the worshipers of God, God's people, that when we come together and we put ourselves and plan ourselves in the house of the Lord and we start to sing to the Lord and praise the Lord and and fear and honor him in great ways, what tends to happen is our lives become stronger. There's a strength that comes into our life through worshiping God. We become much more strong and stable people. The Bible says times of refreshing come from the presence of the Lord. And one of the byproducts of coming into the sanctuary of God, I know for me anyway, is I usually never walk out the door from being with God's people weaker. Usually I'm strengthened, I'm built up spiritually by might and power in the inward man. We're strengthened in the spirit. We're strengthened spiritually. We're strengthened in what's true and right once again. And we leave the sanctuary stronger. And those who are in the house of God receive strength for their life by being in the house of God. And not only that, being in the sanctuary doesn't just make people stronger people. It also makes them more beautiful. Because the bottom line is we become like what we worship. Right? So people who, whose God is money or their God is some you know, automobile, or I mean, people become like what they worship. So people who worship dead, inanimate things become cold-hearted cruel people but when you worship god incredibly in the spirit you start to become like god and so the beauty of our lord starts to become something that becomes reflective and a part of your own life and all of a sudden you don't just leave the house of god stronger in the strength of the lord but you leave the house of the lord and you become a much more beautiful person There's a beauty and attractiveness that comes into your life. And so, again, some of the wonderful benefits of being in the Lord's house, strength and beauty, he says, are in his sanctuary. Now, as he comes to verse 7, you'll notice, again, here's this three-word refrain we saw earlier, sing to the Lord, sing to the Lord, sing to the Lord. Now, verse 7 and 8, he's going to say three times, give to the Lord. Give to the Lord, he says. Give to the Lord, O families of the people. Give to the Lord glory and and strength give to the lord the glory due his name now this verse would certainly frustrate some who are prosperity gospel teachers because they want give to the lord to have something to do with money three times the holy spirit says not only sing to the lord sing to the lord sing to the lord but now the holy spirit three times says and give unto the lord give something unto the lord but notice what the spirit tells us to give to the lord <laughs> It's almost as if it's maybe a greater challenge for us because sometimes it costs way less to just give to the Lord something material. If some people, it's easier for them to write a check and feel good about their own conscience and give to some charity or do some benevolent act than it is for them to genuinely give their devotion to God and to honor God. And so he says, you know what really costs? Giving your life. That's the most valuable thing we all possess. And so here he says, give to the Lord. He, the idea is he, we owe something to him, again, in light of who he is and what he's done for us. So he says, there should be something that we're trying to give to the Lord. He says, verse seven, give to the Lord glory and strength. Give him glory, honor, give to him you know, just the, the praise that he's worthy of as a great king and God and give to him strength. Now, I don't think we strengthen God, but what I can do is I can give God my strength. The idea is with what strength I have, which is often very, very little, but I can give God my strength. Lord, with what strength I have, I will give glory unto you. With what strength I have, the energy, the strength, what I have, 
I want to give it to you. It's, it's for you, Lord. Again, Jesus said, love the Lord your God with all your heart, your soul, your mind, and what? Your strength. The idea is your whole being, everything that you got. Your mental faculties, your physical energy, your heart, your soul, just loving him, giving him your absolute best as an act of worship. Give to the Lord, he says again, verse 8, the glory do his name. I like that, do his name. The idea is it's, it's like something that you owe. It's almost like a debt, God's trying to say. We have a debt of gratitude and a debt of giving him glory because that's what's due his name. He deserves glory. And so to remember that helps us. Lord, I, I want to give to you what you're worthy of. I want to give to you the glory that is due your name. That's where we're inspired to worship him. Now, though that is the greatest thing that God wants, it's interesting that the word of God balances there in verse eight. Also, he says, bring an offering and come into his courts. Now, the courts were the courts of the Lord, the place of worship. And here, notice he does say that when we come before God in worship, yes, he wants our heart. Yes, he wants us to sing, but there's an appropriate way to give unto the Lord where we bring an offering. That is, we bring something to the Lord. Now, keep in mind, when we're bringing something to the Lord, all we're really doing technically, if you understand a proper biblical perspective, is you're giving something back to the Lord, right? That word offering that he speaks of, there isn't even the offering of the blood sacrifices. It's actually the offerings that were the bloodless offerings. When they would give to the Lord uh, a, a offering of wine or oil, there were other offerings that they could give. And this is what's referred to here, something that was of substance that they could use, wine or oil, other things. They would give offerings to God in other ways that weren't just blood sacrifices. But those things were an important part, understand, of their, their diet and things they could sell in the marketplace to be more profitable. And they would give those things to the Lord at times as an offering. So he says here, give to the Lord or bring an offering when you come into his courts. Lord, of what you've given to me, I want to bring an offering of that back to you to acknowledge, Lord, you are my provider. And so therefore, I want to bring this as a part of my worship. And again, the Bible speaks of this as a part of our worship, giving in some way under the Lord of our possessions, of our wealth that he's entrusted to us as a part of our worship. It's an acknowledgement, God, you're my provider. The Bible tells us in the book of Deuteronomy that God is the one who gives us power to create wealth. So again, everything we ultimately have from the Lord is, is, is his because he gave it to us. Last I checked, the Bible says, naked I came into this world, and how are you going out? Not with a U-Haul, same way you came out, right? You, you start with absolutely nothing from the moment of birth, and when you leave, you take nothing with you. So everything that you and I possess and have in between, however we acquire it through our talents, efforts, who gave you those talents? Who gave you the opportunities? Who opened the door for the job? Who gives you the strength to go to the job, right? It's all the Lord's. So when we bring anything to the Lord, we're really just bringing back unto him as an acknowledgement. You're my provider. You're the one that takes care of me. And so, Lord, as an act of faith, I trust you. I want to give unto you to bless, to show you that I'm trusting in you and thankful to you. And he says we should do this when we come into the courts of the Lord. Verse 9, he says, oh, worship the Lord and the beauty of of holiness. Again, what an interesting statement that there's something very beautiful about a holy life, a life that's set apart. God sees that as beautiful, something precious when somebody's life is holy, set apart unto God. So he says, worship the Lord in the beauty of holiness. Tremble before him, all the earth. Say among the nations, verse 10, the Lord reigns. The world also is firmly established. It shall not be moved. He shall judge the people's righteously. So again, this reminder, the Lord reigns. Say among the nations, all the nations of the earth, tell them the Lord reigns. You know, if there's a message sometimes that the nations need to hear right now in these very turbulent times that we're living in is that no matter what's going on, the Lord's reigning. The Lord reigns. Not who's controlling countries or states. Or, the Lord reigns. And that's what we trust in ultimately. And it does good to the human soul, I think, to know. Notice, the world is firmly established. Oh, the world's falling apart. The world's falling apart. Not unless God says so. It may look like it's falling apart, right? There's a Christian song that's been on the radio for a while now. You know, everything's not falling apart. It's falling into place. 
And I think there's a degree of truth to that. The Bible says in Colossians that literally he is holding all things together. Nothing's falling apart until God lets it completely fall apart. He created the world. He's sustaining everything. Yes, there's difficulties. Yes, things are decaying. It's a part of what unfolds on this earth. But it says here, it shall not be moved because he shall judge the peoples righteously. See, God's got to bring things to an ultimate end. And God needs to render out proper judgment for things that have been done. And so God's in complete control. He is on his throne reigning, and we need to remember that ultimately, and it will ultimately culminate in his literal reign upon this earth as he comes back and exercises his judgment when he returns once again. So in light of that, here's the encouragement to all of nature and creation. Let the heavens rejoice. Let the earth be glad. Let the sea roar and all of its fullness, again, that his creation would celebrate that the creator is still in control, no matter what humanity is doing. Let the field be joyful and all that is in it and all the trees of the wood woods will rejoice before the Lord. Isaiah 55 says the trees of the field are literally someday going to clap their hands. That's going to be interesting to see in the kingdom age is Creation itself celebrates the glory of God as he returns back to this earth. Verse 13 concludes saying, for he is coming. For he is coming to judge the earth and he shall judge the world with righteousness and the peoples with his truth. Notice that, again, the repeated statement, just in case we are struggling with what's going on, how it's, he is coming. God is not going to leave unaddressed the things that are going on on this earth. He is coming. And when he comes, not only is he going to restore all things that have been ruined by the fall and creation and humanity because of sin, but he is going to set everything right. Every wrong that's been done, every evil that's transpired, he is coming to judge the world with righteousness. And so therefore we can rest in that. God's going to ultimately deal with it all. And he's going to do a way better job dealing with it all than I would if I stick my fingers in there and try and fix everything. He's going to come. He's going to set things right when he returns. And he's going to judge the world with righteousness. And how is he going to judge humanity, people? Verse 13 says, with his truth. With his truth. The idea is that will be the standard that God will judge by. The truth of his eternal, unchanging word. That is why it is so important for us as God's people, knowing that he reigns and knowing that he's coming and knowing that he's going to judge. That is why it's so important that we uphold the truth because that's going to be the standard that God evaluates and judges every human soul by the truth of his word and that we don't become weak-willed and bashful and stop sharing the truth with people. They're going to be held accountable to this truth and we are the ambassadors to share that truth because we know the end of the story and by the grace of god may he give us the strength to do that father we thank